I've titled my message, If You Only Knew. If You Only Knew. Uh, it's kind of like a strange title to present, a strange message to present to people who have access to all kinds of information. Ask Siri and she'll tell you exactly what, you know, what you need to know. Google, you know? It's so easy. So if you only knew what? If you only knew what? Let me start out with a life illustration. In my early 20s, I worked for the Honda dealership in Kenya's capital city of Nairobi. I had a part-time job there as a mechanic, mainly assembling brand new motorcycles. One day, two at the end of the day, a man who I'm going to call a well-dressed man from out of town, which in Kenya we say countryside. He was from the countryside. He walked into the dealership desiring to purchase a brand new CB125 Honda. If you're not sure what 125cc means, it's basically a very small motorcycle, very little motorcycle, with a lightning speed of 50 miles per hour going downhill on fifth gear. So he walks in, he wants to make a purchase. Deal was closed. And we found out that this well-dressed man, after the bike was sold to him, we found out that he had never ridden a motorcycle before. He was from up country. He was in town. He bought a motorcycle. His intention was to ride it back home. Never been on a motorcycle before. Didn't know the difference between clutch and brakes and rear brakes. He didn't know any of that. If you've been in Nairobi, you know the traffic is crazy. And so this guy, he, he desperately, this is toward the end of the workday. It's like 4 o'clock. This guy desperately need a, needed a crash course on just basic motorcycling. I actually think he needed a crash avoidance course. That's just how bad Nairobi is. So someone gave him some basic instructions. This is how you kickstart. This is the petcock and all the bikers know what I'm talking about. And uh, so he was taught a little bit within the Honda compound. And he, you know, for a few minutes there rode and kind of got it, you know, got the feel of it. Enough to be able to, to ride. So the well-dressed man decided it was best that he does not embark on his trip that evening back home. It was like a two-hour trip home. So he decided he was going to spend the night and leave early the next morning. He said, good. Two days later, my service manager and I left early in the morning to travel to the Mount Kenya region of Kenya and uh, to meet with a group of farmers who requested a demonstration on one of our Honda products. We left two hours, headed north, an hour out of Nairobi, beautiful road out of Nairobi. We spotted the well-dressed man on his little motorcycle. (laughs) He had stopped. He was talking to somebody. So we decided to stop to find out how things were going. And uh, after a casual talk with him, he said, the motorcycle seems to be running really hard. It's, it's, it's loud, 
and it's not fast enough. Well, the thing only can do 50 miles per hour. And uh, so my boss decided to take a quick test to find out what was wrong with this machine. So he jumped on the bike, makes a little loop, and comes back. And uh, there was nothing wrong. There was totally nothing wrong with the motorcycle. It was just fine. After another brief conversation with the well-dressed man, my boss found out that the well-dressed man had actually ridden the CB125CC motorcycle from Nairobi, a one-hour distance, took him about four hours because he was riding on first gear the whole time. He was on first gear the whole time. No wonder that this thing was screaming at 9,000 RPMs and only moving at 15 miles per hour. Couldn't go any faster. And it screamed even louder on the downhill because if you don't clutch in, it's just... And uh, <laughs> so he needed another crash course on motorcycling. This time it was on how to ride efficiently. Everything about the rest of his journey from that point on changed. When he discovered that I have four more gears that I could actually <laughs> shift this bike to, it was his world changed completely. Man, I can actually do 50 miles per hour without this bike wailing. He was really excited. Tell me how different would his journey back home have been if he knew in Nairobi what he now knew in this little town of Sagana. How different would it have been if he only knew? The sad reality about that situation is the well-dressed man had all the information necessary on how to ride his bike to its full potential. It was always there. Right from the showroom, all he had to do was open the book and read and he would have known how to ride the motorcycle to its full potential. But for some reason, he did not. I don't blame him. It was the first time on his motorcycle. I'm sure many of us can think of a number of personal parallels to this story, where after putting so much time, so much sweat, so much space, so much energy into a relationship a career path, or a project, you finally said, if I only knew when I first started this what I know now, if I only knew, if I only knew. Bob Thomas, he's seated right there. He's a long friend of mine. He spoke to us a few weeks ago about uh, the Jewish story of Jesus wrote a beautiful song about Jesus and the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. He titled it, If You Only Knew. I stole my message title from him. He was bolder than I was. He stole it from Jesus. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. If you know the story, one day and an unnamed Samaritan woman came, came to the well. He was known by many in her community 
just by her base reputation. He came to draw water. That's the obvious reason you go to the well. As the story unveils, we're told that she was thirsty in more than one way. She had the answer to the one kind of thirst. That's why she came to the well to draw water. But she did not have the answer to the other kind of thirst. The thirst in her unseen dimension. Providentially, that's also why she was brought to the well. Even though she was known as an adulterous woman by most and treated as such, Jesus surprisingly was able to see her as a deeply thirsting, precious soul. I mean, that should just tell us something right there about the heart of God. I remember the many times I would, I would fall over and over and over and over again. I would sit by a river in Nairobi, Little Creek, and uh, I was like, God, I'm here again. I did it again. Every time I walked out of there, I was set free. I felt freedom come upon me. The forgiveness of God, the, the, the preciousness of our lives to God is amazing. We need, I feel daily that I need a reappraisal of how precious the love of God for me is. I totally need a reappraisal of that every, every once in a while. So Jesus sees a thirsting, precious soul without diminishing the moral seriousness of her adultery. Jesus, unlike any other man, first treated her with dignity by asking for help from her. This is a woman that was despised in her community, especially in the religious community. He was despised. But Jesus comes to her and actually asks something of her. Can you help me? Can you give me a drink of water? It's amazing. This totally surprised her, especially because Jesus, being clearly a Jewish man, should have despised her just because she was a Samaritan, let alone a woman, let alone a woman of low reputation. Jesus somehow looked past into her soul. This gesture by Jesus opened this woman up completely, and there was a wide door for the woman to actually have a profound conversation with Jesus Christ. It's interesting, a lot of what we know about worship comes from this conversation. At one point in their conversation, really early actually in the conversation, according to the writing, John chapter 4 verse 10, and I'll ask you at this point to look at your scriptures. John chapter 4 verse 10, he says this, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. I'm going to read it again. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
There's a few key words here that I want to zero in on. And phrases. Actually, the whole thing is a key phrase. If you knew knowledge, the gift is a promise of God and who it is that says to you, this is his very person, his heart. Give me a drink. This God, God with a great heart, asks for what you already have in your hand. He's not asking you for anything you don't already have. He will take anything that's in your hand and he'll use it. Anything. He did that with Moses. What's in your hand? Oh, I got a shepherd's staff. Okay. I'll use that to deliver my people out of the most powerful empire in the world. What's in your hand? David. What's in your hand? What was in David's hand? A bunch of stones and a sling. Jesus asked the woman, what's in your hand? The boy with the five loaves and two fish. I have some food here. There's 5,000 people. What's in your hand? It doesn't really matter. God's not asking you to conjure up something. He's not asking you to come up with something that's beyond your reach. What's in your hand? Give me what's in your hand. Oh, I can play some music. Give me what's in your hand. I can do this or that. Just give him what's in your hand. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. I'm going to throw in something here too. When the children of Israel were, were, were taken out of Egypt, God sternly warned Moses. He says, do not drive the congregation. Take care of the elderly and the children. I believe the cloud and the fire by night moved at the pace of the slowest person in the camp because just, that's just who God is. They weren't like racing on chariots and stuff like that. He moved at the pace of the littlest guy they're walking or the oldest person. That's who God is. That's the heart of God. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. You take his yoke, you take his burden, you discover, you discover that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the almighty God, is actually very, 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 very meek. That's the heart of God. So he asked for what's already in your hand. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him. Ask him for what? Ask him for what has been promised to you. You can ask boldly for what has been promised to you. And he would have given. There's an undoubted answer to praying for what God has promised you. would have given you living water. That means life abundant. That means life, literally life flowing out of your inner being and gushing forth. 
That's the promise. That's what God wants for you and me as an individual. That's what God, that's what Jesus Christ was offering this, this woman at the well. Knowing and taking hold of the promises of God by prayer is critical to our being able to not only live well, but to live out our full potential. Knowledge of who he is has been revealed to us. It's not a secret. The knowledge on how fast that CB125 could, could travel was, it was a, readily available to the well-dressed man. If he only knew. I believe maybe you come from a place where you feel like somebody needs to kneel down and go through whatever in order to be saved. I believe this woman was saved because she literally gave Jesus what was in her hand. One of the things Jesus told her is go call your husband. Go call your husband. She said, I have no husband. And uh, she said, he said, you're right. Because you've had five. And the one with whom you live right now is not your husband. The Samaritan woman, I believe, changed because this was something that she was going to do. It says in verse 28 of John 4 that the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Interesting, he says, he, she told the men. She told the men. Think for a moment. This woman was a rejected. She had been rejected by five men. For whatever reason, she was abandoned. I believe these men were part of the group that she first went to. Come and see. I believe something so bubbled in her that totally washed away any kind of resentment she would have had toward the five husbands that abandoned her. She was bubbling with life. She was bubbling with the satisfaction of God. And she went and bore witness of it. And the man came out and listened. It was so powerful, they even said... You know, now after hearing him, it's not even what you said. It's just hearing him was so moving to them. She was changed. I believe she was radically changed. In light of the Samaritan woman and the five painful broken relationship, and now maybe even the sixth, I want to ask a very bold question. And believe me, I was not even going to talk about this. Part of why I was mopping out there was because I, I didn't know what God wanted me to say after this. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to wait. He seems to have me wait until the last minute before he downloads something. And this was basically it. In light of the broken relationship, marriage is very precious to God. The opening of the scriptures, as soon as man appears on the scene... It's marriage first. At the end of the Old Testament, it's about relationship. He says, in the last days I will pour out my spirit and fathers will be united with their children, toward their children and children toward their fathers. 
in the New Testament, the first miracle that Jesus performed was in a wedding. The last book in the Bible, the last major event is a wedding. Wedding is very important to God. Marriage is very important to God. So here's a question that I've had to ask myself many times. How alive is your marriage? This is a question I've asked myself many times, and I do still. How alive is your marriage? And here's a second question that I feel is more critical. Is the life of your marriage based on your personal knowledge? Is the life of your marriage based on a personal knowledge of the promise that God gives to a married couple? Because without the foundation of the truth, marriage just stands on something that's about to crack. It's the word of God that endures forever. It's the word of God that is settled eternally. This is actually a critical question in all dimension of life, dimensions of life. If you're single, are you alive? Do you know Jesus as the one who satisfies you? And is your life based on your personal knowledge of the promises that God has given you? The Bible says that the promises of God are actually very, very precious. But for many years, I would read the promises of God and not even pay much attention to it. Life was just... You know, this is what's precious to me. That's what's precious to me. There's just so many things that surrounded me that literally upstaged the preciousness of the promises of God to me. Where's your marriage? The whole idea of taking hold of the promises of God in relation in, in, in regard to a marriage demands that we go back and look at what Jesus, the creator of the universe, says about marriage. I love that every time they had a, the disciples or, or the Pharisees had a question about marriage, Jesus always took them to the beginning. One point he was asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus said, you know what's been written. And uh, they said, why is it then that Moses authorized that you could give her a certificate of divorce? Jesus said, Moses authorized that because of the hardness of your heart. But in the beginning, okay, in the beginning it was meant to be so. So let's look at the promise given to us married people right from the book of Genesis. Let's see what we can mine out of there. You know the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. If you get nothing out of this, just get this. This marriage is such a precious thing. It is such a precious thing uh, that we need to highly cherish. Because it's, it's more than just two people together. It's more than that. It's so much more than that. Let's read this. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness. So out of the dust of the earth, God formed man. The Spirit of God then breathed into man's nostrils, 
and man became a living soul. In other words, an uncreated defining dimension was infused into him. Lump of clay, Holy Spirit breathes upon a lump of clay and up rises up this man. Then God said, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Adam was alone. God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Adam's alone, standing before God. God is one, but he's not alone. Again, God's creating something that would reflect him accurately. So God is one, but he's not alone. Adam's one, but he's alone. What's God going to do about it? He says, it's not good for man to be alone. So God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And out of man, God created a woman and brought the woman to the man. Adam was made out of lifeless, inanimate dust. So women, give the man a break. (laughs) Made out of dust. Dust does not say a whole lot. (laughs) Dust does not say a whole lot. It takes sometimes a really heavy blow to shake us out of wherever we are into reality. Tough, solid, you know, that's just how we are, made out of dust. But the woman was made out of the man. Man was made out of a dead, inanimate thing. A woman was made out of a living being. Okay, that's why women are precious. They were made out of finished product. Again, just keep in mind, this is, this is the image of God here. This is the image of God. He's trying to paint a picture of his image. Genesis then says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Ephesians says, Ephesians 5.28 says that husbands ought to love their wives, love your wives, as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's a strange statement there. But that's what exactly it is. You love everything about your body. Men love everything about their bodies. You know, just, you know. Everything about their bodies. If you love your wife, you love yourself. So they both were told that they were standing there naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Standing before God. There were two individuals, but truly one. There was nothing hidden between each other and nothing hidden between them and God. We're then told God was delighted and he blessed them. Blessed, to be blessed means to be happy. God lavishly and thickly bestowed on them his joy and his delight. And it's out of this that we're told God pronounced what some have called the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This was a daunting task for two people who had a world with no other human being in it. Fill the earth? How long is that going to take? 
And uh, I used to think it had everything to do with procreation, but procreation is just a part of it. The thing about the, the laws of God, the thing about the mandates of God, within them, there's a promise that if we believe what he says and obey, actually those mandates are going to be fulfilled by the power of the Holy Spirit through us. So when he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, he's essentially saying, I want to bless you to fill, to multiply, and to subdue the earth. He wants, to be, he wants us to run this race with him. He wants us to run this race with him. This is the heart of God. It's not to run for him, it's to run with him. And it's, it's coming out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's coming out of a relationship with Jesus Christ, a very personal, a very living relationship with Jesus Christ, that God desires that for us, a living relationship. Not conceptual, it's a living relationship. He uses all the terms, the Bible uses all the terms related to our senses in our relationship with God. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Behold the Lamb of God. Look at him. Look at him. Why would he say that if you really didn't have spiritual eyes to be able to see Jesus Christ? Why would he say taste and see that the Lord is good if you didn't have spiritual tongues to actually be able to taste the sweetness of God? He says we are the fragrance of Christ. How would, we, how would he say that if we spiritually did not have the noses to be able to smell the sweet fragrance of Jesus Christ? That's the reality. That's the promise. So this is what God wants of us. He wants a living relationship with us and with our spouses. And it's out of the unhiddenness of our relationship that we're able to subdue, multiply, fill the earth. It's out of the unhiddenness of our relationship with, with our spouses. It, Paul's very clear that if you have something against your wife and it's not settled, our prayers are hindered. Our prayers are hindered. God is all, he's all for putting passion back into your relationship with your, with your spouse, putting great passion. And it's something we can literally pray about and say, God, I feel like I'm diminishing here in my passion for my spouse. Can you please, please give me a new passion, new wine. He longs to do that to our relationships. Now, if you read farther, you will see that Satan somehow comes into the equation, and that's what we struggle with. He came into the equation and he tried to break it by literally just taking the promise of God and twisting it just a little bit, just a little bit, and he twisted it. And with this, I'd like to say, you know, we we live in a world, even some Christians, they just struggle with the idea of Satan. Is Satan real? They really struggle with even Satan's involvement in our lives. Here's one thing I know. If you don't have Satan in your theology, you're going to demonize people. You're going to create... If you get into a fight with your husband or wife, he's going to be a devil. If you don't have Satan in your theology. 
The Bible says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities. And Satan's, the Bible says we should not be ignorant of his devices. One of his major devices is when we get into a fight to make our spouse look like they are the enemy. When really our enemy is a different enemy. Your wife is not your enemy. Your husband is not your enemy. He may act like one, but he's not. And the weapon of your, of your warfare is not your tongue, it's not your whatever, uh, however you deal with, with confrontation or conflict. It's not that. The weapon of our warfare are not carnal. If Satan can bring it down to carnal, if he can bring it down to flesh, he's got you exactly where you want, and you will spiral for 10, 15 years and it just gets more complicated. It gets more and more complicated. It's like right inside of it, there's this ball of glue. That's the reason. But it's covered with all kinds of stuff. You don't even see it. You start dealing with petty stuff when the actual issue is actually very simple and very small. Very simple and very small. So, Let's pursue, let us pursue what God has promised to us in our relationship with our spouses. Like I said, I wasn't even going to go here, but I felt like this is something that I've needed. This is something that any married person here needs, I believe. Be reminded again that this is, this is God's desire for you. In fact, God so desires that there be unhiddenness. He calls the marriage bed holy. How many things are called holy in the scriptures? The sexual relationship is one that many people never are able to see as holy. But God, in the covenant of marriage, calls it holy. He sees it as a holy communion one with another. It's amazing under the covenant of marriage. That's the preciousness. Again, let's go a little further with the image thing. The Bible says... That the first Adam became a living soul, but there's a last Adam, there's a second Adam, there's a parallel. There's a second Adam, he became the life-giving spirit. Right there, there's a promise. The second Adam is the life-giving spirit for anything, any deadness you might feel here. That's a promise. He's the life-giving spirit for any deadness that you might be feeling here this morning. The similarities between the two Adams is staggering, especially in light of marriage and in light of what God's trying to do about his image. The first Adam was put into deep sleep, and out of him came out a bride. The second Adam chose to go into a deep, dark, dreary sleep, and out of him, out of a living being, his bride came out. That's the image God's trying to paint to the world. That's the image that God wants to subdue our world. It is precious to him. It's awesome to him. The first Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. 
Ephesians 5.30 says this about Jesus Christ and his bride. He says, for we are members of his body, his flesh, and of his bones. This is who we are. Peter says the precious promises given to us, one of the main things is that we have become partakers. If you can swallow this, we have become partakers of the divine nature. You and I in Christ have the DNA of the divine. I would tremble to say that. I would tremble to say that if it wasn't in the scriptures. You and I have the DNA of the divine. That's how big the heart of God is. That's how great his promises to us is. And he wants us to walk. He's not isolated from he's not isolated from us in the sense that I know we can be very intellectual about the scriptures. We can be very intellectual and there's a place for that. But there's a place where there's the experience of God that God longs to actually impart on you. So you actually delight in him. You enjoy him. Uh, I'm going to say one final thing in the next few minutes that I have. When, when I was in my teenage years, my, uh, I would go out and run and come back and grab my Bible, go. I knew I needed to read my Bible every day. Grab my Bible and, and sit in a veranda and uh, just read the scriptures. I would just go from Genesis to Revelation Go back to that's just what I did. It wasn't so much studying, but it was just reading through the scriptures. And I remember, you know, the first time it happened, I was reading through the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. You know, Israel had all bad kings, Judah had a few good kings. And there was one particular king, King Asa. He was a good king. And every time I would read about King Asa in the book of Kings and in the Chronicles, I felt like I could resonate with this king. Not, the because, not because I have any royalty inkling or, I mean, that's the farthest thing from me. I, I'm just a simple man. But I would somehow, his heart, I would resonate with his heart. Because he really wanted to love God. He really wanted to do what was right. But he was pulled here and there. He was influenced by different people and things like that. But he always seemed to come back. I just, I could resonate with him. King Asa. And uh, in Chronicles, it says that when he got older, when he got old actually, he suffered greatly in his feet. But he did not seek help from God. Instead, he looked to physicians. I'm reading that and I'm thinking, I, I've been resonating with this man and my feet are fine. I can run. I'm, I'm good. Maybe that part of it doesn't <laughs> apply to me. But I always felt this thing. I was always drawn to his story. 
You know, I turned like 45 and my feet started giving me trouble. Literally. I, I, would, I would limp. I, would, I, I was in just a lot of pain. And uh, one day I was going through Chronicles again, reading before I went out for a run. Try to run. Really, I was walking at that point. I couldn't even run. I was going to go out for a walk. And even a walk would just, I would be in pain. So I was reading Chronicles again, and uh, something just woke up in me. I, I think it was just faith. And it was like, God, you mentioned King Asa and his need for healing for his feet, but he didn't seek it from you. Are you trying to tell me something? Are you trying to tell me? All these years I can resonate with this guy. Are you trying to tell me you want to heal my foot? And I was like, I'm not sure, but something surely inside of me was rising. That this is actually a promise. That you can actually ask God to heal your foot, and he will. So I stepped out, and I started walking, and I would get to the half-mile mark or whatever, and usually that's where I would start struggling. I got to the half-mile mark, all the while thinking about God you want to heal me? I want you to heal me. Do you want, you know, just like you're wrestling with this whole thing. And I got to the half mile mark and I felt like I could pick up my pace. I got to the one mile mark and I felt like I could run. And I started running. God healed my foot. God healed my foot. We really cannot take hold of God's promises if we do not know what they are. God is saying, if you only knew, you have cancer, you have this or that problem, if you only knew, if you only knew. And, and part of it is we've got to pursue the knowledge through reading his word and seeing what he's trying to speak to us. We cannot pray boldly by faith for what we do not know God promises. We cannot. You cannot pray boldly if you don't know the promises of God. And so my challenge this morning is do a study on the promises of God. Whenever you read the scriptures, look for the heart of God. That's, that's just how I approach scripture anymore. Look for the heart of God and look for what comes out of his mouth from his heart and grab it. Grab it and pray about it. It's living. It's real. It'll set you free. You'll be full of life. You'll be full of life. You'll be full of life abundant. Amen. Let's stand and pray.